Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down on Joyenton Vale. In addition, every man who was desperate in debt or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mithpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be, seat. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Hello's Church. Uh, my name is Andrew and serve as one of the pastors here. If I could invite you and encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 22 to the passage Delaney read so well for us just now. And as you're finding your way to 1 Samuel 22 and we're getting ready to look at this passage, I want to voice one more prayer over us and then we'll dive right in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and the goodness that you show us in Christ. We thank you that there is always grace and goodness to be found in him. And God, we thank you for the ways in which your grace and your goodness is transforming us more into his image. We trust that that work is happening constantly and that you are using every experience in life to produce that end. So, Lord, we trust even now as we open up your word that your word would serve that purpose in our lives, that your word would conform us more into the image of Christ as we study it together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the kingdom of God is a kingdom occupied by people who've grown disenchanted with the world as it is right now. They've grown disenchanted on some level with the world that is around them, and they've experienced the world as it is to be an inhospitable place, a place that is influenced far more by rulers and leaders and influencers who, who take rather than give. And when you think about the dynamic of that which we deal with on a daily basis, the realities of sin, Satan, and death, that's exactly what they do. Sin takes everything from us and gives nothing to us that lasts. Whatever pleasure we find in sin, it is fleeting. Satan himself promises to give us far more than he actually can. And so when we listen to him or are influenced by him, we're moving towards someone who will take everything from us and give nothing to us that lasts. And then, of course, death itself. Death, the final enemy that every human being must face. Death itself, unless its sting is removed, death itself will take everything from us and give nothing to us. Those who occupy the kingdom of God have come to believe in those dynamics. And at some point in time, those who occupy the kingdom of God, they have found themselves experiencing things in life that just haven't cut it. That no experience they've had in this life could 
satisfy or enchant the, the soul that God gifted them with, the life that God has blessed, blessed them to have. And this disenchantment, this dissatisfaction, this discontentment would lead people towards in pursuit of a new king, in pursuit of a new kingdom, a king and a kingdom that is generous, a king and a kingdom that is gracious, a king and a kingdom that, that gives everything that lasts. We move in that direction. And the moment we move in that direction, we find that King Jesus and the kingdom of God has already come moving towards us. This is what Jesus would say when he steps out onto the public in Galilee, and he would say, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And of course, when he uses those words, he's calling sinners and sufferers like you and me to make a decisive break from this disenchanting world to turn from corrupt kings and to turn from collapsing kingdoms and, and turn towards our true and better king who rules the eternal kingdom of God. A king who gives, not a king who takes. And those who would occupy the kingdom of God, we would find in relationship with Jesus the life and the hope, the passion and the purpose that we have been searching for and our hearts have been clamoring for all the days of our lives. Now, today's portion of King David's story anticipates that reality. As we've seen over the past several weeks, looking at David's story, it, it is a window into the story of Jesus, that it is an Old Testament signpost leading us towards the reality of Christ and his kingdom and all that it would be about. And today's story in particular really anticipates the reality of finding a king who welcomes sinners and sufferers, a king who desires and wants those who are outcasts in the world to come to him and find everything that they need. And so we look at this story with, with an eager expectation of the reality that Jesus is for people like you and me. At the point of this passage, King David is continuing to live as a fugitive on the run. He's fleeing from his, for his life from the mad King Saul who's grown envious of David's expanding influence, who does not like David and wants to kill David. And so David has been fleeing. He's been running from one place to another in order to survive and in order to escape the king's powerful reach. So the past few weeks, we've seen him take refuge among the priests in a place called Nob and and then we saw him last week take refuge in a place called Gath, and he actually sought to hide amongst his enemies. And both of those refuges would, would expire, and the timetable would turn, the calendar would turn over, and he would need to keep going. And so today we find him running into the wilderness and taking refuge in a cave. And as he's taking refuge in this cave, you find this beautiful movement of people. People who are moving in Jesus's direct, or David's direction, and we get a picture of the types of people who move in Jesus's direction. Because as David proves to be a king for the outcasts here, Jesus will show himself to be the ultimate king for outcasts like you and like me. And one of the reasons why I think people are drawn to David, I'm going to give you four features of why these outcasts are coming to David in this moment and why people like you and I come to Jesus in every moment of every day is because Jesus, um, 
Because in David, they find a king who understands the plight and the experience of outcasts. Remember, David is living as an outcast in this passage. He's left Israel. He's left Gath. He's now hiding in a cave and He's been rejected by King Saul and anyone who would identify with King Saul, and now he's running for his life. Now, there are two Psalms that are linked to this experience in David's life, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. And both of those Psalms were written uh, after David would meditate and reflect upon his experience as an outcast in the cave. And he would celebrate the fact that God was his refuge in his time of trouble. I'll just give you an example of that of Psalm 57. David would write, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. I call to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He reaches down from heaven and saves me, challenging the one who tramples me. God sends his faithful love and truth. Now this cave that David sought refuge in, it was real. It was, a, it was a physical, tangible place of refuge and relief for him. But David lived by faith. And when you live by faith, as we said last week, you tune in not just to what is real. You tune in to what is really real. You go deeper behind the scenes of what's happening around you, and you begin to see the dynamics of who God is and what God is for his people. And so David, though he's hiding in a cave, he doesn't write a psalm to the cave. He writes a psalm to his king, acknowledging that God is his true refuge, that God is his true relief. And because of this experience... Because of David's journey through this life and living as an outcast during this stretch of his life, he's one who could uniquely understand the plight and the experience of other outcasts in the world that is. Now, many of you no doubt have probably heard the name Lady Gaga. She's quite a famous and popular person. Uh, Lady Gaga is a music artist and she's an actress now as well. and she has around six, 33 million followers on Twitter, 55 million fans on Facebook. I mean, many people flock to Lady Gaga, and many of them who do, they, they actually credit her for changing their life in some discernible way. If you were to go on Google and you were to just type in the phrase, Gaga changed my life, you're going to get about 4 million results. Her influence is so wide. A, guy by the, a woman by the name of Jackie Hubba, she wrote a book titled Monster Loyalty, How Lady Gaga Turns Followers into Fanatics. And much of what this biographer would decide was, was that fans all over the world, they flock to this artist because they find in her someone who understands them. They find in her one who might identify with their story as many of them would describe themselves as outcasts and misfits. And much of her appeal to this swath of people, it it stems from her story because she herself grew up reporting herself as an outcast or a misfit. And she was bullied in high school. One story she shares is this. Gaga states, the boys picked me up one day and threw me in the trash can on the street, on the corner of my block, while all the other girls from the school were leaving and could see me in the trash. Everybody was laughing, and I was even laughing. I had that nervous giggle going on. I remember even one of the girls looking at me and saying, are you you about to cry? That's so pathetic. 
And this, these narratives of from her life as a teenager, being an outcast, being mistreated, being bullied, she leverages that now to exert influence on lots of people who have been, who've experienced similar things and then been treated in similar ways. And so when some of her old friends from back in the day would come and see her show and they would connect on some level, she said that they would say, Gaga, your fans, they're just all misfits. They are all the, the kids in school that everybody made fun of. And then she later said in an interview, she said, well, all of the weird kids, the artistic kids, all the bad ones, and they, they, they come, and I love that because that's who I was. And so we think about that dynamic that all these people found in Gaga, someone who could identify with them, someone who they felt understands them. And as cool and interesting as it might be that Gaga can do this for so many people, you understand that we have one far greater than Gaga, that the God of the universe understands what it's like to be treated like an outcast and a misfit, someone who stepped into the world and the world that he created would reject him, someone who would come into the world and the world that he loved would hate him. He would come into the world and not find acceptance, not find belonging. He would step into the world and find rejection and crucifixion. We have one far greater than Gaga. We have the God of the universe who can understand any moment when we feel as though we don't belong in this world. Any moment when we feel as though we are being mistreated and abused, rejected and cast aside. We have a king and a savior who understands us because he himself has experienced this. And this is why so many of us flock to Jesus People all over the world throughout the history of humanity has flocked to Jesus because they find in Jesus someone who understands them like no other. And you see these people flocking to David because there's a sense in which they find him sympathizing and empathizing with them as well. But you also find in David a king who not only understands the outcasts, but a king who welcomes them. If you notice the group that comes to him in verse 1, we're told first that David's brothers and his father's whole family heard. They went down and joined him there. They went down and joined David in the cave. Now that phrase, his whole family, that's significant because there was a time when his whole family wasn't supportive of David becoming king, of David being the guy. His older brother Eliab, earlier in the story when David showed up to fight Goliath, it was his older brother Eliab who did not support him. Eliab dismissed him and questioned his motives. And in that moment, Eliab shows himself kind of the, the bad side of himself. He's not very strong in that moment. He's rejecting God's anointed one that came in the form of his brother. But now something has changed. Now they may be going to David because their lives are in danger, because they're related to David, but they also may be going to David because there's the reality that they're recognizing him to be the true anointed king. And so the whole family would go to David, including this brother who at one time dismissed him and a brother who at one time questioned his motives. Now, just as a side note, there's this, as you kind of journey in family, particularly the family of faith, there will be moments when you see people at their worst. You're going to see moments where people are dismissive, where people are antagonistic, where people are questioning motives, and they are not uh, doing things well. 
That's just a reality of being sinners living in a fallen world. And we're going to see that in each other the longer we experience life together. But when those moments come, what we have to do is remember that there are other moments. Moments like the one we see here where Eliab and everyone is coming to David. They're not rejecting David. We're going to see each other in our worst moments. And when we do, we must remember each other in our best moments that there's always something else to look at when we're thinking about one another and interacting with each other. So David's whole family is coming to him, but then there's another group. We're told that in addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around Jesus. And I love this dynamic that the family precedes this misfit, ragtag bunch of outcasts who would come to David too, and they would find the same acceptance, the same belonging, because that's the dynamic in the kingdom of God. When we come to the king of God's kingdom, we find not just acceptance and belonging, when we come to the king of the kingdom of God, we find family. We join the family of God when we move in this direction, being welcomed by the king. I want you to think about why these men are described as being desperate and in debt and in discontented, because these men were part of the people of Israel that at one time requested Saul to be their king. That's who they wanted. And although they were warned, look, you don't want Saul as king, they insisted on having Saul as king. And then a prophet spoke in that moment warning them, look, if you, if you give your loyalty to Saul and you follow him in this way and you're trying to become like the rest of the nations and wanting a king like this, someone who is tall and impressive and all these dynamics, it's not going to go well for you. And earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is what where everyone was warned about the type of king Saul would be. And what you find in this passage is a king who takes everything and gives nothing. Listen to these words and make note of all the moments the word take is used. The prophet said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you, referring to Saul. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots on his horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. They were warned in that moment that Saul would be a king who would take everything but leave them with nothing. And at this point in the story, there's a group of men who've come to understand just how oppressive and tyrannical Saul's rule is, that he is a king who takes and not a king who gives. And so what does he do? What do they do? They bail on Saul and they rally around David because they're sensing something different about David. What this group of men are finding is that to be like the surrounding nations, that is a curse. Our goal in life should never be to look to the right or to the left and think, I want to be like them in their disobedience or their unbelief or in this, that, or the other. Our goal in life is to rally around the king. And so we come to the king who welcomes us. 
And there are many people, perhaps some of you in this room right now, who are ruled and who are being ruled by that which takes everything and gives nothing that lasts. Sin is dominating you, Satan is influencing you, and death is scaring you because you have no way out. And if that's your situation, hear the words of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. Make a decisive break from corrupt kings and collapsing kingdoms and turn to the one king who lasts, the one king who understands and the one king who welcomes outcasts, sinners, and sufferers like us, and not not just into his kingdom, but welcomes us into his family. So you have all these people who have grown disenchanted with Saul and his rule, and they're going to David, and they find in him not just a king who understands and a king who welcomes, but a king who leads the outcast. It says in verse 2 that David became their leader. This ragtag bunch of outcasts, they formed the making of what would come to be known as David's mighty men. And later, David would lead this group on conquest to establish the kingdom of God in the wake of Saul's demise. Outcasts, I believe, want to be led. They want to be led. They want to be ruled, but they want to be led and ruled by a benevolent king not a tyrannical king. They want to be led by a servant king, one who leads the charge in battle rather than giving orders from a throne. And this is what they would find in David who would lead them in that direction. And this is the type of leader you and I find in King Jesus when he leads us and he rules us that although at one time we were alienated and did not belong anywhere, we now belong with Jesus and he's leading us through this world so that we are not vulnerable to being harassed and rendered helpless by sin, Satan, and death. You think about Peter's story in the New Testament. Peter was one who at one point in his life, he was overlooked and rejected by many religious leaders in the first century. Being a young Jewish man, the fact that he became a fisherman probably means that at one time he he wanted to be discipled and attach himself to a rabbi because that was the dream of most young Jewish men growing up in the first century. They wanted a rabbi who would take them in and lead them through this life. And what would happen if you wanted somebody to disciple you and, and kind of attach yourself to such a leader? You would go and you would present yourself to them. You would display your intelligence. You would display your acumen. And, and then rabbis would choose, okay, yeah, you, you can run with me. Uh, yeah, there's potential in you. You can come with me. At some point in time, it is likely that Peter was overlooked and Peter was turned away by rabbis and teachers in the Judaic faith. And so he becomes a fisherman, which was a respected position. Uh, a respected profession, but it wasn't the type of profession that every Jewish man dreamed of as they were growing up in the first century. And then one day, what happened? One day, Jesus stepped onto the horizon of his life, and although Peter had been turned away time and time again in his story, he he hears the words of Jesus saying, hey, come follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I will be your leader. I will be your guide. I will be the one who takes you in and uses you to turn the world upside down. And this is exactly what Jesus would lead Peter and others like him to do in the first century. So that there even came a moment in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where we're told that even though Peter and others like him were uneducated, ordinary men, they turned the world upside down 
following the leadership of Jesus, being used by Jesus in ways that they never dreamed possible. When it comes to being led by the Savior, to advance the kingdom of God in the world that is, en route to the world that is to come, understand that our leader, our king, he is not looking to lead the talented. He's looking to lead the obedient. So whatever Jesus is stirring in your heart to do, whatever Jesus is stirring in your heart to be about as you spend your days in this world, listen to that. Follow that, not in obedience. Don't sell yourself short thinking you're not talented enough, you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not good enough. Jesus isn't looking for the talented to advance his kingdom. He's looking for the obedient those untrained, ordinary people like Peter, whom he would use to turn the world upside down. So David was a king who understood the outcast. He welcomed the outcast, and he would lead the outcast to do the work of God in the world. And we find in Jesus the true and better king who who does the same in a much better way. But then fourth and finally, this group of people flocked to King David, because they found in him a king who also cares for the outcasts. That in the process of coming to Jesus and relating to Jesus and being led by Jesus, you are, you are in the arms and the presence and under the power of one who cares about you. And he will take care of you. This is what he does in verses 3 through 5. He knew that his family couldn't run, experience the journey that he was going to be on. And so David said, well, I've got to find another refuge, another place for my family to be put for the time being. And so he takes his family to a guy named Mitzpah of Moab. Now, the Moabites were the enemies of Israel, and King Saul was Mitzpah's enemy. And, but David goes, thinking, well, maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and he'll take my family in. And so he goes to them and says, please let my father and mother stay with you until I know that what God will do for me. Now, what's fascinating about this moment, it could be a situation where the enemy, of my enemy, enemy is my friend, and that's why this king would help David. But I think there's more going on. You see, David had a great-grandmother named Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite. And Ruth devoted herself to a woman named Naomi who suffered a lot. And she worked to take care of Naomi. And she saw Naomi and her sufferings. And you read through the book of Ruth and you find a story of God's incredible providence to provide and to set up this family that would later lead to David's birth in the world, the true anointed king in the Old Testament. And what you begin to see as you think through these dynamics is that Naomi probably suffered a lot and didn't understand the purpose of her sufferings. She didn't see the reach of her sufferings in the full stretch of God's redeeming activity and his plans and his purposes in the world. She didn't know that one day David, one of her relatives, would would need refuge that David's family would need protection, that David's family would need to be cared for. She didn't know that all the while God was doing an infinite number of things at the same time, including setting up a refuge for David's family in this moment through Naomi's sufferings 100 years, 200 years prior to this situation. It's a wonderful picture of how God's care, how God's kindness It is given to people well in advance. 
that the Lord is setting up your care. He's setting up your protection. He's setting up your refuge long before you ever need it. And nowhere is this more clearly revealed than when we are told that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. That before the world was even created, God had set up a system that would lead to you and I being cared for, not by King David, but by King Jesus. Because God's care and his protection is given well in advance. This is why we celebrate the sovereignty of God. And we rejoice in the fact that the Lamb of God was slain from before the foundations of the world, that God was always moving human history towards the glorification of Jesus, this king who would understand the plight of outcasts, who would welcome outcasts, who would lead outcasts, this king who would care for the outcast. And so you see the care of the king coming from providence, but then you ultimately see the care of the king when you look towards the pain of Jesus. And just as David would lead his, leave his family here and everyone who had identified with them would now be at the mercy of whatever God's will for David was, knowing that if God protects David, that means he's going to protect those who are with David. And there was a similar situation when Jesus came to the end of his life and he, he's looking around at Peter and James and John and all these outcasts who had identified with Jesus and They've tied their fate up with his fate. And and what does Jesus say? Okay, I need to step into this garden and I need to see what God's will is for me. And he goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he bows down and he begins to pray through the Father's will. He weeps droplets of blood stemming from his brow because he knows and expects that God's will is going to be his suffering. And so he prays through this. He weeps through this. He discerns what God's will is for him. And what God's will is for him would be his will for his people. And so he prays through this dynamic, eventually saying, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but as you will. And Jesus would submit himself to his Father's will, giving his life up, dying as the ultimate outcast, so that outcasts like you and me may be brought into his kingdom so that we might be served by the king. So we put our faith in Jesus as our king because he understands what it's like to be a stranger and an exile. We come to Jesus because he welcomes sinners and sufferers like you and me, sinners and sufferers, and he leads us and he cares for us to the point of giving his life up for us on the cross. And if God did not spare his own son, how much more then will he not graciously give those who identify with Jesus all things, care, protection, provision, kingdom, the hope and the life, the purpose and the passion that our hearts have been clamoring for as we've journeyed through the world that is becoming disenchanted with it so that we might run to find in Jesus everything we cannot find anywhere else.